Welcome to Title Now, the podcast where we talk about stuff. That's a very technical term. Stuff that is going on in the title insurance world and the world of real estate attorneys. I'm Melissa Murphy with The Fund, and I am your host of Title Now. These podcasts are a new effort to reach out to our fund members and others in a way that gives us more room or flexibility to talk about issues of interest and concern, new things that are going on that real estate folks need to know about. You know, that stuff I mentioned at the top of the show. Some issues never go away, and we will talk about those whenever we need to. And then occasionally, we will talk about things that might not be your normal topic of discussion when you think about real estate and title insurance. So I hope you will stay tuned. But before we get to our main topic today, I have to talk briefly about cyber fraud. I want to remind you and reinforce that you must be extremely vigilant about potential hacks into your email, the buyer's email, the seller's email, the broker's email. These fraudsters fraudsters will target one of your transactions, I promise. As I said at assembly, it is not a matter of if you will be targeted, it is a matter of when. Recently, I talked with a fund member who is handling a closing where the buyer's money was diverted through someone's email being hacked and fraudulent wire instructions being substituted for legitimate ones. The buyer sent their money to that fraudulent account. $900,000. So please, please heed our warnings about these situations. They continue to be very prevalent out in the market and you need to stay alert. So back to today's main topic. What fruit did the 2017 Florida legislative session yield? I have with me Mike Merrington, Fund Senior Underwriting Counsel. He's our resident legislation tracker. Mike presents an up-to-date report on the legislative session every year at our major event, Fund Assembly. Most years, the Florida legislature closes down mere days before our event, so Mike is scrambling those last few days to make sure his presentation is as up-to-date as possible. So he's the perfect person to talk with us today about this year's legislative session. Mike, welcome to Title Now. Oh, thank you very much, uh, Melissa. It's nice to be with you this afternoon. So Mike, how do you do it? How do you put together a presentation of what happened a mere days before assembly? Well, I have to tell you, it's, it's pretty challenging. I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have a team of four other underwriting attorneys who help me track the various bills. And that's a process that begins as early as January. And we, all, we track those bills together. Each underwriting attorney that is my team member is responsible for tracking a certain range of bills. And then as we get closer and closer to the assembly, of course, I have to coordinate the, uh, con- the receipt of each of those bills, summaries, and prepare a PowerPoint presentation for use at the assembly. As you suggest, it is extremely challenging when the legislative session ends only days before the assembly to put it all together. Uh, but we are able to get it done. Several of the people on my team have been doing this for many years, and we, we thoroughly enjoy it, and we're... Uh, very proud of the work product we're able to produce each year. 
I know that many fund members who attend assembly over the years look forward to your presentation because it's about as hot off the press as it can be. You cover as many bills as you can in that presentation and then include others in your written materials. So we can't possibly review all of the laws that passed this year in this podcast, of course. So Mike, where would you start? What bill passed that you would mention first? I think, Melissa, one of the most relevant bills to fund members uh, is going to be Senate Bill 398. Senate Bill 398 passed both houses of the legislature and was signed by Governor Scott, and it will become law on July 1st. This is the so-called estoppel letter or estoppel certificate bill that there's been a lot written and spoken about in the last two or three years. Uh, The bill first came about in 2015, and because the legislature, because the House adjourned early that year, that bill, which had passed the Senate, never got voted on uh, by the House that year. 2016, a similar bill came back in both House and Senate and never made it out of committee. So two years in a row, the effort failed. However, this year, Senate Bill 398 was passed by both houses of the legislature. It's very important because it makes some pretty significant changes to the way that estoppel letters uh, are furnished by uh, associations and uh, limitations on the fees they can charge and uh, issues of reliance on the certificates. So I guess third time is the charm. Absolutely. What are the highlights of Senate Bill 398? Well, first of all, it reduces uh, the amount of time that the given association has to respond to the request for an estoppel certificate from 15 days down to 10 business days. So that's a reduction uh, from previous law. And by the way, these changes that we're talking about with Senate Bill 398 impact all three of the major community association statutes that we have in Florida. Chapter 718 on condominiums, 719 on cooperatives, and 720 on homeowners associations. The uh, new bill does, or the new law will, which is actually effective July 1st, will contain a great deal of required content for the estoppel certificate. And just a couple of examples of what must be in the estoppel certificate would be the date that the certificate is issued, obviously the the parking or garage space number of the that's pertinent to the unit if applicable, the fee that the association is charging for the preparation of that certificate, the name of the person requesting the certificate, Uh, and whether or not there are any open uh, violations of any rules or regulations uh, by the part of the unit owner in question. So, uh, and there's there's more to it. It's a very uh, expansive laundry list of information that must be included in the estoppel certificate going forward. And I think that is very different from what the pre-existing law provided. Do you agree? Yes, this is, this is quite an expansion. There are uh, a number of uh, bullet points uh, that are set forth in the statute of information that must now be part of the estoppel certification, uh, and not the least of which is the signature of the officer or the authorized agent of the association. So a, a departure from existing law, certainly, in this regard. 
And I think there are some really good points about this new information that is required because it's information that a buyer will think is significant, as will the closing agent. So in my opinion, this new law improves the information that is required from the association or the management company. What about fees? That was a very hot topic over the three sessions that we tried to get this bill passed. What was resolved about fees? Well, the, uh, the new law will deal with the maximum fees that associations may charge for uh, preparation and delivery of the estoppel certifications. Those fees, generally speaking, are going to be capped at $250. However, if there are delinquent amounts owed to the association, they can charge up to an additional $150. And if the person requesting the estoppel certification requests that it be provided on an expedited basis, another uh, $100 can be added on to that. And expedited is defined as being within three business days. So this is, this is an effort to uh, cap these fees. The former uh, uh, versions of these statutes uh, talked about having allowing a reasonable fee, which of course is a very subjective term open to a great deal of interpretation. Now the statute will be specific in terms of actual amounts that can be charged under specific situations. And it seems like there is something in the new bill that should provide more comfort to closing agents with regard to the length of time that the estoppel certificate is effective. Absolutely. Uh, when, the, when the estoppel certificate is provided by electronic means or by hand delivery, it's effective for 30 days in the hands of the person who's reasonably relying on it. If the certificate is furnished by the association by U.S. regular mail, then it is good for 35 days. Uh, I think one of the very interesting things about the change to the statute that makes a lot of people very happy, uh, Melissa, is the fact that under the new law, the association waives its right to collect any monies that are owed in excess of the amounts that it demands in the estoppel certification. That's very important. It absolutely is so that people can rely on it. The other super hot topic in this area has to do with the pay in advance versus pay at close. Did the bill address this concern? Well, the, the, uh, what it did do is provide that when a transaction does not close, that there is a, uh, a non-waivable right for the party who paid the fee for the estoppel certificate to have that money refunded. And this is very important, Melissa, because prior law, at least in the cooperative, excuse me, in the condo and the HOA statute, did provide a, within 30 days of the failed closing, a right for the uh, person who obtained the certificate to get their fee refunded. However, under prior law, that right to reimbursement was waivable. Under the new law, that right to reimbursement is not only not waivable, but the new statute provides for uh, damages, attorney's fees, and costs to a prevailing party in any action founded in the right to reimbursement of the estoppel certificate fee. The management company or the association can still require that they be paid in advance before releasing the estoppel certificate, right? Yes, that, that was something that uh, the proponents of the bill were not able to 
we're not able to convince the uh, uh, legislature that it should be something payable at closing, they can still, the associations can still demand advance payment. Anything else on this bill that you want to mention? This bill was the culmination of three years of efforts, and even though we didn't get everything we wanted, it did accomplish quite a bit, and I think we should be proud of our effort. No question about it uh, in terms of uh, there, there were some compromises clearly made, but I think that uh, um, the bulk of it is very, very positive. The, this, the new statute does provide that these fees that the associations can, can charge will be adjusted uh, each uh, five years based on the consumer price index. So uh, the law may change uh, down the road in terms of the maximum fees uh, allowable. The last thing I want to mention on the estoppel bill is that we have prepared suggested forms for a letter requesting the estoppel certificate and the estoppel certificate itself. Those forms are posted on the fund's website and are there for our members to use as they see fit. So what else happened in this year's legislature? Well, um, in, in, a, in another uh, bill that has been signed by the governor, House Bill 359, uh, this bill was effective upon becoming law. So when the governor signed this bill on June 26th, it became law at that point. Uh, and this is uh, a bill that deals with, in relevant part, it deals with what are called property information reports. And this is uh, something that's new. It's something that is designed to impact the plat certification process or the replat certification process. And the, in a nutshell, the bill provides that a property information report is acceptable to be submitted to a county uh, in lieu of the old way of doing it, which was called a plat certification by an abstractor or a title company, that the property information report will now be considered an acceptable part of the plat application uh, or re, uh, recertification process. House Bill 359, interestingly enough, is very clear that the liability of the issuer of the report is strictly limited to the persons who are identified in the report as recipients of the information, and the liability may not exceed the amount that was paid for the report. Also, very important, the law stresses that the property information report is not title insurance. Anyone who is involved in plat certifications or recertifications, Melissa, as part of their practice, is going to be very interested in House Bill 359 and should take the time to review it carefully. This is a very interesting bill once you take a close look at it. It's short. It gets to the point pretty quickly. But there are some significant ramifications to changing this title product. So here at the fund, we have created a new property information report as a branch product, and we are analyzing how this new report fits into all of our title product offerings. So Mike, I think a couple of things happen in the area of condominiums, as always. It seems that every year something is passed that involves condominium law, and I don't think this year was an exception. Oh, not an exception at all, Melissa. We had a couple of uh, noteworthy condominium bills. First one I'd like to mention is House Bill 1237. Uh, this was approved by the governor 
and it will be effective July 1st, 2017. Uh, this bill of, of interesting note uh, adds a lot of uh, information concerning uh, the penalties, uh, the, the punitive measures against officers and directors who uh, engage in uh, uh, fraudulent activity or election fraud or other uh, theft, other uh, misconduct in the, in the conduct of their duties. There's a lot of conflict of interest provisions that are added as well. For example, an association may not hire an attorney who represents the management company. And generally, except for timeshares, uh, a board member or manager or management company may not purchase a unit that is in foreclosure based on the association's lien or accept a deed in lieu of foreclosure uh, in the same uh, context. So this is a little bit of an effort to codify some conflict of interest uh, provisions. The uh, Florida Division of Florida Condominiums, Timeshares, and Mobile Homes of the Department of Business and Professional Regulation uh, can now, under some guidelines here, certify an arbitrator who's been a member of the Florida Bar for at least five years and has met other conditions within the preceding uh, or the three years preceding uh, their application to be approved as an arbitrator. And uh, lastly, I would note that the new law provides that board members sitting on a condominium association board may not serve more than four consecutive two-year terms unless that is approved by two-thirds vote of the members or unless there are not enough eligible candidates to fill all the vacancies. So this is kind of an omnibus uh, bill that just takes uh, into account a number of different uh, elements of uh, condominium law. Uh, the condominium statute is one that is tweaked repeatedly, as you alluded to, and this year uh, was no exception. I'm sure there was more than one bill involving condominiums. What else was passed? Well, it was not. We have uh, Senate Bill 1520, and this uh, was also signed by the governor. It will become effective uh, July 1st. And this relates more specifically to termination of the condominium form of ownership. And fundamentally, that's what condominium is. It's a form of ownership. Uh, the condominium statute, specifically Section 718.117 on termination of condominium ownership, was substantially overhauled. Uh, by the Florida legislature in 2007. And that uh, amendment uh, made in 2007 has been tweaked and tweaked and tweaked repeatedly, repeatedly since. One of the main features of Senate Bill 1520 is a requirement that for terminations of residential condominiums that the uh, Florida Division of Timeshares, Condominiums, and Mobile Homes of the Department of Business and Professional Regulation must approve a proposed plan of termination for a, again for a residential condominium uh, does not apply does not apply to commercial that's a departure from past practice where there was no state regulatory approval necessary for the plan but I think the most interesting aspects of Senate Bill 1520 relate to what happens if a proposed plan of termination is rejected under current law when a plan of termination is voted negatively, voted against by at least 10% of the unit owners, the plan fails. The termination plan fails and another plan of termination cannot be proposed for at least 18 months. 
Well, the legislature has now changed those dates that are relevant. Now it only takes a 5% negative vote of the unit owners to kill a proposed plan of termination. And when a proposed plan of termination is rejected, another one cannot be proposed for at least two years. So we've extended the time period between the proposing of uh, plans of termination when you have a rejected plan, and we've decreased the percentage of unit owner disapproval necessary to kill a plan. I really think that's one of the most interesting aspects of uh, Senate Bill 1520. Well, Mike, listening to you describe these new laws, it just reinforces my opinion that if an attorney practices in the area of condominium law, they have to pretty much specialize in this area because it is so complicated. For our listeners who focus much of their practice on condo law, you need to get familiar with these two bills. Yeah, I totally agree uh, with that, Melissa. In fact, the Florida Bar recently established a new standalone certification area for condominiums. Uh, previously, it was all under the umbrella of real estate. Now, condominiums, just as construction law, has its own area of certification. It is extremely specialized, as you pointed out. Let's try to lighten up on the topics a little bit, Mike. Are there some miscellaneous bills that you want to touch on? Yes, actually, Melissa, we have House Bill 7107 that was approved by the governor, and it's uh, a companion to a House Joint Resolution. This is a proposal uh, that to increase the homestead tax exemption by $25,000. Now, it's important to note that this has not become effective yet. It is still subject to uh, approval by the voters in Florida. And as with any constitutional amendment, a 60% approval will be required. So if that happens, then this should be uh, effective sometime uh, in 2018. Uh, but the groundwork has been laid through House Bill 7107 and its companion House Joint Resolution to put this on the ballot uh, soon uh, for the voter approval. That would raise the homestead exemption up to $75,000 if, if it's approved and takes effect. Lastly, uh, uh, Melissa, it's important all of our fund members have notaries in their offices so they all should be interested in House Bill 401, which was signed by the governor and will become effective July 1st. And very simply, House Bill 401 provides an extra form of identification that may be accepted by a Florida notary for purposes of taking uh, jurats and acknowledgments. And that is a veteran's ID card issued by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. And that is, uh, so that is now an acceptable form of identification that all of our notaries uh, may rely on. Well, thanks, Mike, for talking about all of these bills, all of which have gone into law. But I want to talk now about a bill that passed the legislature but was vetoed by Governor Scott. Why? Because this bill is going to come back next year with changes and some very committed proponents pushing for its passage again. This bill would have shaken things up quite a bit in the world of wills, trust, living wills, and maybe durable powers of attorney. It was called the Florida Electronic Wills Act, House Bill 277. It passed the legislature and created a whole new world for the signing of wills, trusts, and living wills. 
It was proposed that these important documents be created and signed electronically. No hard paper needed anymore. And the electronic document, whether it be a will or living will or trust, had to exist in an electronic record, be electronically signed by the testator in the presence of at least two witnesses, and be electronically signed by the witnesses in the presence of the testator and of each other. That sounds familiar, but now electronic signatures will be acceptable. The act also allowed for the self-proving of wills. It required that a qualified custodian be designated to maintain the electric, electronic record, and there are a lot of rules and guidelines around that qualified custodian. But the intent was to allow electronic wills to be created and then to provide that they be probated in the same way as paper wills and it would have been effective July 1st of this year. Now, it's important to understand that the electronic signing provided for in this bill was not remote witnessing and remote notarization. The testator and the witnesses and the notary were required to be in the presence of each other, but they could sign electronically. However, the bill contained a provision that allowed for remote witnessing and remote notarization to be valid effective April 1st of 2018. So the concept of in the presence of the testator and of each other would be defined as either in the same physical location or in different locations, but able to communicate with each other by you know, live video, conferencing, with a whole set of technical requirements for uh, visual contact, uh, communication, identification of the testator and the witnesses, and who must be there. It provided for a whole series of questions to be asked of the testator to prove that uh, they were competent. Obviously, this was a huge, change. Not just the electronic signing part of it, but when you couple that with the authorization of remote witnessing and remote acknowledgement, it was a whole brave new world. Well, how does this affect real estate titles? Because the will, regardless of paper versus electronic, has to be probated in order to pass marketable title. But here's where it got even more interesting. Durable powers of attorney were originally one of the documents that this bill authorized to be signed electronically and eventually remotely in 2018. So this created a great deal of concern about whether or not a durable power of attorney signed electronically and remotely could be the basis for a deed, i.e. for that agent to sign a deed on behalf of the principal. Well, we discovered several significant conflicts with existing statutes and concluded that such a deed would not be accepted for title insurance purposes. After much discussion, the proponents of the bill took durable powers of attorney out of the bill completely. So durable powers of attorney 
would continue to be signed in the good old fashioned way, on paper, in the physical presence of the witnesses and notary, etc. So the bill was vetoed. So we are back to status quo. But this issue will come back in next year's legislature, so the industry must be prepared. So for that reason, people interested in this topic are already talking about legislation that will likely be submitted. And this summer will be very busy with discussions about all of the topics and the issues around this potential change in the way we do business. Be on the lookout for changes in the requirements for real estate documents to be witnessed and notarized in Florida. Basically, be on the lookout for new laws that allow for remote witnessing and notarization of deeds, mortgages, durable powers of attorney, regular powers of attorney, the whole enchilada. So stay tuned. The 2018 legislative session will be interesting and next year's legislative session kicks off early because it's an election year. So the legislature starts meeting in January rather than the traditional March. So that is why this summer is so busy getting ready for that earlier session. Thank you, Mike, for joining me today on Title Now. Oh, thank you, Melissa. I've, I've enjoyed it. Um, thank you for asking me. I've enjoyed uh, trying to explain uh, the significance of some of these bills to our, to our members. Thank you for listening to Title Now. Please send me your suggestions for topics and guests. I want to make sure Title Now is informative and interesting. And as always, thank you for your support of the fund. <music>